Hello, Slate Plus members. We wanted to take a moment and say thank you once again for your membership and support, which has become more important than ever, especially in times like these. You're helping everyone at Slate do the work that we do, and we're doing our best to put out the best work for you. Now, if you're a reader at Slate as well as a listener, you may have heard that Slate.com recently installed a paywall, but as Slate Plus members, you have access to everything on the site. As long as you're a member, you will not hit a paywall. All you have to do is sign in at Slate.com slash login. That's Slate.com slash login. And if you have any questions about your account, you can send an email to plus at Slate.com. Hey, pretty listeners. This episode was one of the first ones that we did from our respective homes after the shelter-in-place order, so you might hear some bumps and clicks in the recording. That's because we bumped and clicked things. Don't feel like you have to adjust your headphones. It's our fault. We've since made some adjustments, and next week's show will be less bumpy. And now, dear Prudence at home. Dear Prudence. 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 Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Hello and welcome back to the Dear Prudence at Home show. Uh, Once again, and as always, I am your host, Dear Prudence also known as Daniel M. Lavery, with me in the studio this week is Monica Tomsinski, an indoorsy introvert who loves novels, pop culture, historic places, and chocolate. She lives in Seattle with her spouse and small dog. Monica, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me today, Danny. I'm thrilled to be here. I'm so thrilled too. I've been trying to, you know, as we've been adjusting to recording from home, uh, try to find a balance between topical questions because there's a pretty huge pandemic that's affecting all of us in unprecedented ways and also trying to make sure we have a balance of uh, the kind of timeless, sometimes stress-relieving questions that are uh, a strange relief to hear. And I hope that we've been able to strike that balance today. I want everyone to feel just the right amount of um, uh, we're tapped into what's going on and also don't worry, we still have one question about an outrageous boss. Would you be so good as to read our first letter? Sure. So the first letter today is co-parenting in the time of COVID-19. Dear Prudence, two and a half years ago, I divorced an abusive narcissist. We share custody of the best kid, and I've been in a really healthy and loving relationship for a year now. My ex has a new partner too, who helps out with childcare. My ex still engages in all the same manipulative behaviors by email now that we're living separately. His fiance is always CC'd and never engages. And now there's coronavirus out there increasing everyone's stress levels, demanding 180% of all of us every day. We are continuing to switch custody because our pediatrician said there's no reason not to. Our kid isn't high risk and none of the adults are either. At first, I asked for a modified custody schedule, three days on, three off, from our usual 2255 because five days alone with one parent and one kid and no outings is tough. He said yes. Then he emailed to say it was too risky to do this much switching, so we need to do longer stretches. I checked in with an epidemiologist friend before replying that we don't need to worry. There's no increased risk from switching if it's a one-shot trip with no stops at a gas pump or grocery store, so we can leave the schedule at the modified 3-3. He responded by saying that the safest thing, according to his medical advisors, is to do 14-day stretches, and that it would be hard on everyone, but it was best for the health and safety of all. 
I want to reply by saying, sure, and my new partner will quarantine with me while you have our kid, and then I'll have a two-person team here when it's my turn. But this will just engage him further. He's a bully, and he's relentless. His goal is not health and safety, it's winning. He wants me to ask for things and then deny them. He is more ruthless than I am and always willing to fight more, and that's how it was in our marriage, and that's how it's continued to be since. What do I do? How do I cope with a co-parent with malicious intent? This one's so hard because obviously, yeah, no matter what the ongoing issue is going to be, that it's an incredibly high stress situation where you have fewer options than you would even under normal circumstances. And you're dealing with somebody who's going to go out of their way to antagonize you. Um, that said, the um, the kind of joking suggestion that the letter writer provided struck me as actually an incredibly good one. Um, yeah, the, the joking suggestion to say, sure, um, and the new partner will quarantine. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I am a child of divorce. Uh, my parents had a not great relationship either. And um, I was kind of struck by the fact that uh, the letter writer seems to be sort of struggling in a couple ways here. They seem to be struggling with their ex and sort of this co-parenting relationship, but also like they need, they do need to think about what's best for their kid. And so I was curious about if they have really thought about will going to a 14 day stretch, not seeing one of their parents, like, is that going to be more stressful for this kid? There's already so much in their life that's probably changed. So yeah, it seems like there's like a couple factors here. One is what's best for the kid. And then the other is this relationship with their ex. Right. Right. And I don't know, it doesn't sound like, um, it sounds like at least some of the modifications with the custody schedule they've been doing so far have not been court ordered. It's It's been more like on the basis of whatever their pediatrician recommends, the two of them have come to some sort of agreement which is both good and difficult because obviously without a court order, it's more difficult to convince your ex to agree to something. Um, And then also potentially easier in the sense that you're allowed to make changes without appealing to a judge. Um, But yeah, that did strike me as a good question. I don't know whether or not 14 days in, in each place would work for your kid or if it wouldn't, or if you would need to find some kind of common ground between three days on three days off versus 14. There's there's a lot of middle ground between those two numbers, I think. Definitely. Yeah, and it seems worth sort of exploring that. I feel like the letter writer is really worried about coming up with a counter proposal like that and sort of having a fruitless conversation with their ex. Um, right, yeah. And, and so I think if there is a limit to how much back and forth you think is going to be productive with your ex and if part of you wants to kind of conserve your energy for dealing with this huge crisis that's at your door. I I really do think if you say, I will find a way to make 14 days work and your partner is willing to, um, I I think technically it's only quarantine if you know that you've been exposed to the virus. I I mostly just want to try to keep my terms clear because I know otherwise I'll be inclined to confuse them in my head. So I think this would technically fall into the category of either social distancing or sheltering in place. But if your partner's willing to do that, as awful as your ex may be, you know, he, he cannot stop you from, from having your partner with you. That, that doesn't mean you necessarily want to have a long conversation with him about it. But certainly if your partner is willing and able to shelter in place with you and help you look after the kid, that, that strikes me as a, a, a totally good outcome. 
Yeah, I agree. And then if the kid is having a hard time with um, with the 14 days with only one parent and not seeing the other, maybe they can try video calls um, or revisit the 14-day rotation if that ends up just being too hard. Yeah. And I realize part of what I'm saying is also it just doesn't address the fact that like I'm having to deal with sheltering in place while also dealing with uh, an unreasonable, angry, manipulative, vindictive ex and co-parent. And that's a very difficult position to be in. So I'm also just aware that part of the advice we're offering is sort of like, do your best and sorry that the problem will still exist because unfortunately that's just the situation. He may very well uh, begrudgingly accept that your partner is entitled to decide to shelter in place whether or not he likes it. Um, But he may then seek uh, other ways to kind of lash out at you. I I think it would be reasonable to assume he will probably try to do that. And there's, I, I wish I had more to say in terms of here's how you can make sure to prevent his future lashings out. But I, I think one of the things that's just going to be really hard is figuring out how do I conserve my energy as much as possible, knowing that my partner is going to go out of their way um, to try to waste my energy. Yeah, I think you really hit the nail on the head, sort of figuring out like, where where do you put your effort and your thoughts and your energy and how can you sort of do what is best for you in this situation while also looking out for your kid? Yeah. And it's hard because again, under any other circumstances, you could ask friends and family to help you out with childcare. But in this situation, it sounds like you potentially have the option to ask your new partner to shelter in place with you. And other than that, other people may not be possible. So um, part of what can be hard there is that sense of either I'll be able to get my partner to help or I'm looking at potentially 14 days alone, just me and my kid, on top of dealing with an unreasonable ex who might be emailing me angry and vindictive things. And that's really, really hard. But I do think if you do decide to ask your partner for that and your partner is willing and your ex really blows up at that, again, I know it's not realistic to say, just ignore his emails. You have to be engaged with him at least some of the time because you co-parent the same kid. But at least when it comes to your decision around having your partner shelter in place with you, Um, I hope you can, to whatever extent it's possible, um, just say to your ex, I understand that you don't like it, but this is the way that it is. I worry I'm being Pollyannish there, but I think that's my best advice. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I I hope that you make it through this. I hope we get to hear from you in a couple of weeks and we can hear how this has been going. I'm, I'm, I really hope that your partner is able to stay with you because I think the idea of having to parent a kid as a single parent for 14 days where you can't really go other places would be, I hope you don't have to do that. So let's move on to our next letter. Also similar theme, um, but it has the benefit of at least being um, lower stakes, lower investment. Like this isn't uh, somebody that you have a kid with, which is always <laughs> always good news, I think, when you have a big, big problem. And it's um, my turn to read this letter, so I'll go ahead and do it. The subject is, my boyfriend has COVID-19 and I'm resentful. Dear Prudence, I've been dating a nice man for about three months. Matt and I are both in our 40s. Neither of us have dated in quite some time, and we're both pleased it's been going so well. However, a few days before our governor announced a shelter-in-place order, Matt returned from a long flight and texted me that he had a cough. I called to see if he needed me to go to the store for him, and he said he'd already been, that in fact he'd also gone to yoga class. I was horrified, but I didn't say anything about what I thought was very irresponsible behavior in a pandemic. My need to keep a conversation running smoothly can sometimes prevent me from recognizing my own emotions in the moment, so it took me a while to realize I was upset. 
When we spoke the next day, he said his doctor had told him he was symptomatic for COVID-19 and that he should self-quarantine for 14 days. He said he, quote, probably would follow that advice, quote, kind of, but he felt like he could go out if he really needed to as long as he wore a mask. Again, I didn't challenge him, aside from explaining what I'd read about the limitations of relying on a mask. Although I did text him later to say that I really thought he should take his doctor's advice seriously. The next day, he texted that he probably just had a cold and that he really liked to see me. I texted him a light reply, turning him down. A few days after that, he tested positive. His symptoms are mild and he's going to be fine, but I'm so annoyed. Yet I can't link it to any specific character flaw. It was stupid, but he's very smart. It was arrogant, but he's very humble. It was irresponsible, but he's a caring and competent father to his two kids. This seems like a pandemic-specific failing that has mostly to do with being chronically optimistic. He's always sending me everything's going to be fine texts, which just exacerbate my irritation. I don't want to break up with him, and I think I just need to let this go. He's properly self-quarantining now. But emotionally, I just don't feel any attraction for him right now, and I'm not engaging beyond maybe one text a day about his health. I can't think of a way to address this that doesn't sound accusing. I'm not into you after that dumb, dangerous thing you did. Doesn't seem constructive. Also, it feels pretty terrible to be mad at a guy for being sick. Can you think of any kind of productive conversation? I certainly can. Um, Monica, I'm curious to know, before I go into you know my whole, here's exactly what I think you should do thing, did you have a particular sense one way or the other of what you thought this letter writer's priorities ought to be right now? Um, I feel like it seems like she is not really too stressed about the overall situation. I'm guessing that she is practicing social distancing. I realize that I'm saying she, and I don't actually know that this writer is a woman. Uh, so this letter writer seems like their life is probably pretty okay. And they're just dealing with being annoyed about their boyfriend. Um, yeah, I mean, my my first reaction was uh, the writer says, it feels pretty terrible to be mad at a guy for being sick. But this writer isn't mad at him for being sick. The writer right. is mad about the way he acted when he knew that he could have this potentially very contagious disease and he's out in the world, even though his doctor told him not to. So I think the first thing is to say, like, you're not mad at him for being sick. Yeah. That strikes me as super important. I, I, I also noticed throughout this letter, not only the attempt to downplay her own very real frustration for very obvious uh, behavior that is not simply being sick, um, but the the self-awareness around, I sometimes don't realize my emotions until a little time has passed. I often have a high internal need to keep a conversation running smoothly, which is Excellent self-awareness, but I, I noticed that that is coming into play again by the end of the letter. Like, they've already managed to convince themselves because he claims to be self-quarantining properly now, which is he? He doesn't sound like he's actually taking it very seriously. He continues to be sending you a lot of texts about how everything's going to be fine when it's demonstrably not fine. So, I, I think that that might there be again another attempt to smooth things over. Like, yes, it was a problem then, but I'm sure it's not now. I, I don't feel the same level of confidence that he is properly self-quarantining. So so I, I don't think that this is necessarily something that you need to uh, relegate to the past. And then on top of it, you say like, I don't actually feel any attraction for him right now, but I think I need to just get over this, which is that, that sentence really has me concerned that you're this um, convinced that if you no longer feel attracted to someone, 
but you've convinced yourself that they're a good person, that you need to just get over it and keep dating them. That to me is like, um, that's really worrying because you sh- you should allow yourself to be honest with yourself if you don't feel attracted to someone. You should not, your response to that should not be get over it, walk it off, get it together, find your attraction to him. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. I couldn't tell if the writer has actually talked to Matt about what the writer thinks about how he was conducting himself while he was waiting for a diagnosis. And I know that the writer says, can you think of any kind of productive conversation? And I'm wondering if they maybe need to think about productive conversations a different way. Like having a conversation about this doesn't have to lead to any sort of decision or action. Mm -hmm. A productive conversation could just be sharing. Like, hey, I wasn't able to express this when this was all happening, but now that it's been a few days, like I was really upset that you ignored your doctor's advice. It seemed pretty selfish and that's out of character for you. Why did you do that? And maybe just like explain how you feel and give him a chance to respond and acknowledge your feelings. And that that might make you feel a lot better and maybe put you on a good path again. I feel like yeah. a productive conversation doesn't doesn't necessarily have to be more than just like sharing and asking and maybe you come away from it feeling better or maybe you come away with it realizing like hey this guy is generally caring and is generally humble and is generally smart but I can't be attracted to him anymore now that I've seen him behave this way like that yeah. that's valid too. That makes a lot of sense. I, I think that's so helpful too, especially because it seems like the letter writer kind of feels like if I'm not willing to break up with him, I can't bring it up at all because, um, you know, either I could stick to my guns and dump him or I could just tell him that I'm bothered by something that's already happened. And there's no point in doing that because you can't change the past. And that kind of mindset, I think, is one that's really useful when you want to convince yourself that your feelings are a problem to be smoothed over. But yeah, like my, I think that a good definition of a productive conversation isn't necessarily one where um, Matt says, you're right, I was wrong, I'll never do that again. A productive version of this conversation would be you tell him honestly what your reaction was to his choices, and he knows that about you. Whether that means he then, you know, has a real change of heart, listens to you, rethinks his actions, commits to behaving differently in the future, or something uh, a little less perfect than that. Or even if he acts like a jerk and you think, actually, now I do want to dump him. Any of those would strike me as productive outcomes. But I think especially uh, the thing that I really also just want to outline, underline rather, um, is, you know, it, it was stupid, but he's smart. It was arrogant, but he's humble. It was irresponsible, but he's normally competent. Uh, you know, people often behave uh, in ways that are out of character. We have a phrase for that, right? It's, it's out of character. Um, because almost no one is so perfectly consistent all the time that they never slip up or fail to live up to their own values. So you don't have to say like, it's impossible to be upset because he's normally smart. Like smart people do dumb things and you're allowed to say that was dumb. Um, you don't have to suddenly like, uh, figure out a way to, uh, pretend it didn't happen because they're normally smart. Yeah, for sure. And I think like this will be a good learning opportunity for the writer to learn more about learn more about her boyfriend and about how they can handle these sort of 
disagreements about how to behave in certain circumstances. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like at this point, I'm kind of hammering point the same idea. So I I will let this go after this. But uh, that sentence, I'm not into you after that dumb, dangerous thing you did doesn't seem constructive. It only doesn't seem constructive if you consider the important thing to maintain uh, Matt's comfort and happiness. If that was your only priority, sure, it wouldn't be constructive. But if your priority was we're two adults in a relationship, both of whom uh, have important internal experiences, values, uh, thoughts, ideas, responses, and it's good for us both to know what one another is thinking, uh, then it's incredibly constructive. It's, it's wildly constructive um, because you are as much a part of this relationship as Matt is. You are not in this relationship as Matt's facilitator. You are in this relationship as you. And if you have a response to something that Matt did, which again, I agree, like, I think it was selfish. I think it was irresponsible. I think it put other people at risk. Um, it, you know, it doesn't mean necessarily that he's an evil, stupid monster who would, uh, you know, do other things that are maliciously, like intentionally malicious, but it's, it's a bad thing that he shouldn't have done. And it makes sense that you would want to talk to him about it. So I think the conversation is not just productive, but necessary and important. Um, you can have it without consigning him to eternal damnation. And I think with that, we should move on. Uh, this is getting even slightly easier. We're moving into easier and easier problems until eventually we wade back out into more difficult waters. But I think the next letter is yours to read. This letter is Noisy Neighbors. Dear Prudence, as I write this, the person who lives above me is vacuuming their entire apartment and moving their furniture around while they do so. I understand that it's a stressful time and cleaning is a common way of dealing with it for a number of good reasons. But it's after 10 p.m., Quiet chores would be better. Normally, I go upstairs and politely ask them if they could finish up tomorrow, but I live in an area that's on lockdown due to the coronavirus. Is a note appropriate here? What's the new etiquette for appropriately addressing problems with neighbors when you can't communicate in person? What are your thoughts on this one? (laughs) Um, My thought is that, you know, this, this writer could do a couple things. If they happen to have their neighbor's phone number, they could always give them a quick call or a text saying like, hey, could you please keep it down after 10? Um, Or if they don't want to do that, like they could always get in touch with the apartment management. um, And it might be helpful for the management to just send a reminder to the whole building that um, people are home a lot right now and uh, that being extra mindful of whatever quiet hours are established would be appreciated by all of their neighbors. Um, yeah, it seems pretty, pretty low stakes. This writer doesn't mention like having sort of a tense existing relationship with the neighbor. So it seems like there's a few options. And if all of those fail, I think a note would be totally appropriate. You could keep it really friendly and uh, unconfrontational. And I'm sure your neighbor will understand and be happy to be a little quieter after 10. Yeah, I... I... I think all that makes sense. I'm inclined to take a slightly different approach on this one, um, but but only slightly. I think the the spirit is still very much the same. Um, I think the first thing that I would encourage the letter writer to bear in mind is this may be going on for a long time. Um, it may be much longer than just another week or two, and everyone's going to run low on patience, high on irritation, because it is stressful and difficult to be you know in 
one location most of the time, even if you have an incredibly, even if you're lucky and you manage to keep your job, even if you have an incredibly like regimented schedule, even if you're able to get like a wonderful, appropriately socially distanced walk in every day, like it's just going to be hard. And so I think one thing that will really be helpful is whenever possible, if you're able to acknowledge like we're all kind of living on top of each other, even more so than usual right now, part of what that's going to mean is within some reason, sounds that aren't ideal, um, is there any way I can try to let this go to do that? So, you know, this has happened. It sounds like one time after 10 PM. Yeah. That sounds a little bit frustrating, but given the circumstances, if I were in your position, I would try to let it go. And I would look for solutions that involved like earplugs, headphones, white noise machine, whatever I could in my own space, um, before doing anything else. Um, I think if I were to encourage you to talk to your neighbors about anything, it would be about trying to organize like a, a rent strike, given how many people uh, are still being asked to pay their rent when they have been let go. Um, so that I think would be the thing that I would encourage you to talk to your neighbors about before you went to the vacuuming. But all that to say, yes, you're still allowed to to ask them to keep their vacuuming to uh, daytime hours. Um, and if that were the case, probably just again, because like tempers are fraying, I would still maybe knock and like stand six feet past from the door and kind of acknowledge like, hey, you know, just wanted to say hi. I know this is all wild. I'm staying an appropriate distance away. I'm not interested in like trying to get in your personal space. Mention the vacuuming thing. And then also like ask if they need anything, ask how they're doing. If that's not possible, then then I would say do the no. But like my my first thing is like try to let it go. My second thing is see if you can help organize a rent strike. My third thing is talk to them in person. Fourth would be write a note. I think that makes a ton of sense. Yeah, I'm just like, I, I've learned a lot of things about various people on my block in the last couple of weeks. And it's just like, as long as no one is trying to actively set my house on fire, we are all trying to get through like unbelievably challenging circumstances. There are people like trapped at home now with kids, people who have lost their jobs, people who are trying to just like stay alive and sane. And so I'm doing my best um, to whatever extent I can to just say like, we're, we're all doing our best and uh, it's we're, we're not under normal apartment etiquette rules, um, which is hard. I wish that we were, I'm sorry. But um, yeah, my best advice here is find a way to make peace with the fact that there's not going to be a lot of peace. Uh, okay. Next letter. Uh, I believe this one is me. Um, and we're moving away from, from more topical, uh, subjects. So it's kind of nice to, to open our lens back up to other kinds of problems that people can have. Uh, the subject line of this is very charming. It's let me be a twink in peace. And then in parentheses, getting people to respect your gender. Dear Prudence, I'm non-binary, I use they-them pronouns, and I've spent years curating my style, which has ended up fairly femme. The issue is that I was assigned female at birth, and people keep using this as a reason to misgender me slash not see me as trans. I consider myself pretty mask, and I love how queer my femme-ish outfits feel. It's starting to really bother me, and while changing my body to align with how I see myself is a long-term solution, I can't medically transition until I'm completely financially independent from my family. While I believe most aspects of gender are self-determined, how people see me is definitely a factor in how I conceptualize myself and navigate the world. Until I can start tea, should I compromise my style to stop strangers and or people in my life thinking of me as a woman or keep on at it and suck it up for a few more years? I feel so much affection and tenderness for you, letter writer, and I hope it doesn't cross come across as flippant when I say, 
I can't promise you that starting tea um, will stop strangers or people in your life from thinking of you as a woman. Um, which I, I don't say to to be at all like dismissive or nothing will ever uh, change the way in which people like automatically gender you. Um, there's there's lots of things that that can be useful and helpful if that's a goal, but um, it it is also one of the like true and often difficult realities of transition that hormonal transition does not automatically or quickly or thoroughly or always efficiently um, get people to gender you appropriately. So again, I don't say that to be like, don't bother, nothing will work so much as I think if you think of it in terms of either, this is the thing that will get me what I want. Um, and until I have that, um, nothing will do it or, um, putting kind of all your eggs in that basket of like, once I start doing this, this problem will be over. Because I think if, if then when that day comes, if you do continue to experience that, even if it's only some of the time, it will feel, I think, additionally painful of God, I like had the emotional reserves to think if I can just get through the next two years until I'm financially independent of being misgendered, then I'll start tea and I won't be misgendered. Um, and just there are, there are people who are on tea for years and years and still get misgendered. So I, I hope that, you know, you're you're able to uh, change that right away. I hope that you immediately get um, gendered in the way that you need. But I just want to start off by saying, while all of those are really good long-term goals to have, it's also, I think, important to figure out a variety of ways to um, weigh different, sometimes competing interests um, when it comes to uh, medical transition, when it comes to getting dressed for the day, when it comes to engaging in sometimes difficult conversations with people in your life. Um, and, and you'll want to uh, weigh them all differently, I think. Sorry, I realize that's like a, a very uh, long-winded way of saying you'll have to consider this all the time, uh, not just push it off until someday after you start tea. Yeah. Um, I I feel like this letter writer is in such a difficult position because it seems like they're trying to, like, ideally, the entire world would gender them correctly, use the right pronouns without the letter writer having to put any thought into it. But they're putting a ton of thought into it. And uh, it seems like when they are talking about compromising their style to get people to stop thinking of them as a woman, I was interpreting that as, like, should I dress in a way that makes it easier for people to understand that I am non-binary. Right. And I think I, I had a couple of thoughts about the way that that was framed. I, I thought one of them, the, the kind of like the implication of should I compromise my style was like, you know, should I wear something I hate and try to dress up as much like a lumberjack as possible um, in order to communicate something to other people? And I think that's not quite the only option that's available to them. And I think it's important not to think of it as either I wear my style um, and I feel pain or I compromise and get what I want so much as um, there's a lot of different things that you can bear in mind when you think about how you want to dress on a given day and that also dressing does not always automatically result in other people understanding what we're trying to communicate internally. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does to me. Which is, it, it's hard too, because I think then there's also that sense of like, well, if I started dressing with an eye towards attempting to read um, as some version of non-binary and like obviously trying to read as non-binary is a pretty 
non-binary can mean so very many different things. I think often what that translates into is I'm attempting to look more androgynous in the hopes that people will see something like androgyny in my outfits, on my body, and then recognize that and and affirm that through language, which is also uh, something that's bound up a lot in various ideas and assumptions about bodies, about race, about class, about fashion. So it's a, it's a difficult prospect. And um, mostly I think I just, I want the letter writer to know that there's nothing wrong with attempting to style yourself on a daily basis with different principles. Like if one day you feel like I want to see what dressing in a particular way, like if, if yeah, I know people sometimes find language around passing really uninteresting or unhelpful or unsupportive, I totally get that. That said, it's also okay if you want to try one day and say like, my goal is to try to get served um, at some point, And I wonder if this outfit will help me get there. And I'm doing it as an experiment. I'm not committing to it for the rest of my life. There are ways to do it that might be in some ways consistent with some of my values of style. There might be ways to do it that feel really dispiriting, but to approach it with a spirit of curiosity rather than like, if I start doing this, I'm compromising, I'm giving up on some important part of who I am. Like, you are allowed to try different things and say like, oh, that did get me a sir, but I didn't like the way that it happened. Or I felt more congruous in some ways, but I didn't get the sir anyways. And that sucked even more, um, you know, to, to, to try different things and to see what happens um, and to see what you feel like you enjoy, what you can live with, what you want to do sometimes, but only sometimes, what you hate and don't ever want to do. To investigate all of that for yourself is, I think, really important. And I think in addition to all of this, um, to recognize that I think possibly more important than than investigating what other things you you can ask of your clothing and of your style. Do you have any people in your life who do gender you correctly, who do see you as trans, even if they're not people who live near you or who you see every day? Because um, it will really help, I think, to uh, invest in relationships with people um, who do value and recognize your transness. Um, and and don't attempt to use the fact that you're not able to access certain aspects of medical transition right now as a reason to dismiss your transness. I think that's going to be really, really critical in addition to whatever choices you make around wardrobe. Good luck. You know, I, I have also been there. I have made a number of various choices. I think lots of my uh, early transition was characterized by various attempts to kind of dress in a lot of different ways to see how it looked and how it felt, things that I thought would uh, kind of result in a certain response from other people didn't always happen. Sometimes I guessed wrong. Sometimes I guessed right. Sometimes I was surprised what I was wearing on days when I got third. Um, So all of which is just to say I I have been there. I have also, you know, picked up outfits where later I was like, this is too dour and serious and severe. And maybe it got me the sir today, but at what cost? Um, and, and so you're allowed to try things and then abandon them if they don't work out, especially when it comes to clothes. All right, we're, we're heading back into slightly slightly more complicated territory. I'm glad you get to read this next letter because it's, it's, it's long and it's complicated. Yes, this letter is bizarre. Dear Prudence, I'm in my mid-20s and have been dating Nina for nine months. Nina works but still lives at home with her mother and teenage sister, Nikki. Nikki has been demanding the gifts I have given Nina over our relationship. The designer purse, nice makeup, and a loaned laptop. She will walk into Nina's room and steal from her. Their mother does nothing to punish Nikki and instead lectures Nina about sharing like she's a toddler. Nina is the one working to keep a roof over their heads and her mother treats her like this? 
It's abusive. Nina will not move in with me because she's afraid her mother will not be able to make the rent otherwise. I convinced her to at least move the majority of her belongings in with me. We went while their mother was at work and packed up Nina's clothes and other belongings. Nikki started to scream and hit Nina when she went into Nikki's room to get the stolen stuff. I got between them and told Nikki if she tried to hit me, she wouldn't like the outcome. She threatened to call the cops. I laughed and told her to go ahead. She was the thief here. I could prove what I paid for. Nikki sat on the couch quietly until we left. Nina stayed with me a few days and then went back to talk to her mother. It didn't go well. Their mother accused me of terrorizing Nikki while ignoring Nikki left actual bruises on Nina. Nina is basically living with me right now. She doesn't have a lot of close girlfriends. I love Nina, but I don't know what to do to help her. Her mother has screwed with her head and Nina doesn't seem to think she deserves good things. Only Nikki. What do I do here? Oof. Yes, this is quite a situation. Um, It seems like the writer is sort of Nina's only support. And that's got to be really tough feeling all of that pressure if she doesn't have other close friends that she's talking to about this situation. It's great that the writer is trying to be supportive. It sounds like beyond just the living situation, maybe Nina should join a support group or find a counselor. It sounds like she's got maybe some deeper issues to work on beyond just the relationship with her mother and her sister. And yeah, I, I also feel complicated because I can, I I know that the letter writer is able to see the ways in which um, Nina's mother and sister mistreat her. But I also see the ways in which the letter writer's intervention has made life more difficult for Nina. Yeah. It doesn't seem like going and threatening the sister to, you know, accuse her of being a thief was going to improve anybody's relationships. Right. Especially the like macho posturing of, I got between them and told Nikki if she tried to hit me, she wouldn't like the outcome. Um, That's unnecessarily escalating. That didn't help anything. That was about your ego. And that was, you know, threatening to increase the violence in the situation. And you can see that that had an effect on Nikki. She sat on the couch quietly until we left. Like she froze up. She tried to make herself as small as possible. She was just hoping that the two of you would not continue to escalate. So I think one thing that's really important for you, letter writer, is you need to not be around Nikki or Nina's mother. Like you need to do whatever you need to do to make sure that you're not in the same room with them because I don't currently trust your ability to actually look out for Nina in those moments. I I think that you would convince yourself that you were doing something for her. It would actually have more to do with trying to get one over on Nikki, who I agree sounds like a really unpleasant and unreasonable person, but you're not going to get anywhere by like daring this teenage girl into hitting you so you can hit her back. That's not the way out of this situation for Nina. Does that make sense? Yeah, I agree. I think um, it sounds like there's a lot of tension and like physical conflict between these sisters, which is not good. But the writer getting involved doesn't seem like it is going to make anything better and could just make things a whole lot worse for everyone. Yeah. So any situation where you find yourself threatening violence to a teenage girl, 
is not a situation you need to seek out again. Uh, And it doesn't matter how much provocation she lobbed your way. You need to, as a responsible adult in your mid-twenties, avoid situations where you believe you will be tempted to threaten a teenage girl. Um, So don't do that again. Um, I, I think you can continue to encourage Nina to talk to a therapist, to talk to other people, um, to talk to you. Um, but getting angry and belligerent back at these angry and belligerent people is not going to help her. The help that she needs will have to do with the kind of like internal work of saying, I don't deserve treatment like this. I deserve peace. I deserve respect. Um, I deserve physical safety. Um, what do I need financially, emotionally, structurally, professionally in order to get those things for myself? Those are all things that you can point her in the direction of, support her as she pursues those things. You can't just force them on her. You can't just do it for her. So I think trying to keep a really um, specific sense of your role here will be helpful to you. And your role here is, at the very least, to not make Nina's life more difficult and to not threaten violence uh, to teenage girls, no matter how rude those teenage girls are to your girlfriend or to you. Um, or how awful their mother is. That's, I think, just my biggest advice here is you need to take a huge step back and figure out ways to be actually helpful and to not go over to that house again. Oh, yeah, this is, um, I think we were able to kind of like run the gamut today of big and little problems, both topical and non-topical. And uh, I mostly just feel for everybody trying to get through each day. How are you holding up, Monica? Are your neighbors vacuuming a lot? Are you at home right now? Are you are you doing the the whole shelter in place thing where you're at? Yes, um I'm in Seattle, so we are sheltering in place. Um I'm recording this from my bedroom closet. Uh, I have wonderful neighbors on both sides of me who have kids who um are enjoying the beautiful sunny weather that we're having today. Hmm. I'm I'm coping pretty well, all things considered. Uh, Like I said, I'm an indoorsy introvert anyway, so not a whole lot has actually changed in my daily life beyond I don't go to my office to do my work anymore. I'm doing it at home. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that it's sunny and beautiful. I am also in my bedroom closet, funny enough, um, because that's the quietest place in the house. And, um, but yeah, I've, I've really just resigned myself to like, there's not going to be quiet. Everyone's uh, at home. I have one neighbor across the street, I think, who's been playing like the crooniest Dean Martin songs imaginable. Like most of his songs are pretty croony, but like on top of that, the crooniest ones, they're just blasting them every afternoon. And it's just like, guess I'm listening to Dean Martin today. That's just, it is what it is. There could be choices that that might be less pleasant than that. So yeah, all things considered, that seems like a pretty decent thing to be listening to. It could be way, way, way worse. It could be uh, so much worse. I'm frankly grateful for Dean and I'm sure there will be days when I look back and I'm like, oh, those were wonderful times when when that was going on. So I'm, I'm trying to count my blessings uh, as much as I can. Monica, thank you so much uh, for hanging out in your bedroom closet for a little while and answering these questions with us and just take care and stay safe. Thank you so much for having me, Danny. This was so much fun. Thanks for listening to Dear Prudence. Our producer is Phil Circus. Our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash dearprudence to subscribe.
And remember, you can always hear more Prudence by joining Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash prudipod to sign up. If you want me to answer your question, call me and leave a message at 401-371-DEAR. That's 3327. You don't have to use your real name or location. Keep it short. 30 seconds, a minute tops. Thanks for listening. Here's a preview of our Slate Plus episode coming this Friday. I noticed the number of times this letter included words like limitations, holding us back, crawling, failing, escape is like constant and relentless. And so obviously this particular trip is probably not going to go forward, but yeah, do I think that like if you had this to do over again, you could have had better conversations than the ones that you failed to have? Absolutely. I would not encourage you to sit someone down and say nine or 10 times in a row, you can't keep up. You can't keep up. You'll fall behind. You'll ruin our fun. We'll have to sacrifice ourselves for you. To listen to the rest of that conversation, join Slate Plus now at slate.com forward slash prudipod.